In Romans chapter 8, we've been discussing the process of sanctification. And to simplify that big, huge word, I'm going to just talk about it as the, the process through which God matures us as his disciples. He takes us from being newborn Christians, uh, born again, just like Jesus taught um, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he takes us from the place of being spiritual babies to spiritually mature. And so in Romans 8, we'll get there. We're going to talk about sanctification. But before we started this morning, I wanted to go to 1 John chapter 3 because one of my devotions this week actually talked about and referred to Romans 8. But it came from the perspective of 1 John chapter 3 verse um, 13. So there in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. I think that's what it was, verse 13. He says this. He says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's not the reference that I meant to write down. Sorry about that. I thought that's where it was. I guess I wrote down the wrong reference. Like I said, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning, and I'm going to completely ignore that little footnote in my Bible. So Jesus um, saves us. He's paid for our sins. He's justified us. He's made us righteous. He's um, given us salvation in His Son. God has. And now, He doesn't just um, bring us to life and impart to us His Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit to reside in us. He doesn't leave us as orphans, though. He brings us to maturity. Now, if you've ever had children of your own, and most of you in here have or do, um, what happens is that those children are born to you. You take them into your home. You bring them home from the hospital. And from that point on, they need you for every moment of their life. They need you for food. They need you for uh, love. They need you to take care of their diapers. They need you to provide for them a place to sleep, um, food to eat. They need you for everything. And I think the the odd thing to me about that is that I think oftentimes we think that Jesus came to save us, but he leaves the rest up to us. He's just going to leave us hanging. But the reality is, is that when we're born again, we become Christians. The, Jesus is now, uh, he's our savior, but he's also our Lord. And God the Father doesn't leave his children as orphans, but what he does is he gives us his Holy Spirit to procure to, to seal us until the day that we see Jesus face to face. To provide a passageway through this oftentimes rough life to bring us to maturity, but also to bring us safely to our final destination. Abraham walked by faith, but he lived in tents, meaning temporary dwellings, passing through this life, going towards his destination. Our destination is not our home, it's not, uh, you know, whatever your idea of comfort is. Our destination in this life is maturity as a Christian, and our destination is heaven. Abraham walked through this life 
looking for a city whose creator and maker is God, whose foundations were set upon Jesus Christ. And so in the Christian life, our, our reality is, is that though we've been saved by grace through faith, there's still some maturity that needs to happen. God wants to work in us faithful servants. He wants to make us what we profess to be. If we are disciples of Jesus Christ, then that means that we are dependent upon him for everything, not just for a ticket to heaven. And so Paul's kind of talking about this in Romans chapter 8. And last week we ended with uh, verse 17, but I want to read through verse 12 through 17 because in there I think there's something very important that the Lord revealed to me this week. In chapter 8, verse 12, he says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He talks about how we're not debtors to the flesh. We don't owe the flesh anything. The only thing that the flesh gave us in our life was death. When we were ruled by its passions and its desires... The only thing that it brought forth was death. But the reality is, for as many as are led, verse 14, by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. If you want to, you can insert, these are the sons or the daughters of God. The reality is is that we are, because we are led by the Spirit, if you are in Christ, if you are led by His Spirit, you've given your will over to follow His will, then you are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And remember we talked about that word, Abba, is the word that little Hebrew boys and girls would use to call their father, not only father, but daddy, that intimate fellowship. And so we've been given the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit resides in you, and you have the desire to please God. I'm not saying that you have a 100% track record of doing that. But if the Spirit of God resides in you, you have a desire to serve God, to do whatever He gives you to do for His glory, then you are in fact His children. You've been adopted. And the Spirit, verse 16, Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. But before we get to the suffering part, which is kind of where we landed last week, we want to focus in real quick on verse 17. If we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. Now, what gives us the right to be joint heirs with Jesus? There was a man that came to Jesus one time and he said, He said, good teacher, I've got a question for you. Now, Jesus said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. But he also said this. He asked Jesus this question. How may I, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And whether we realize it or not, many of us live our lives trying to answer that question. What do I got to do to earn God's favor? Well, If you've been studying through Romans with us, you'll know that we can't do anything to earn God's favor. The best day that we have, the best of the best, Isaiah says our, our righteousness, the best we have to offer is his filthy rags. But what 
Paul writes here is that not only do we not have to earn it, but in what Jesus answered him is he said, you can't earn it. He told him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, it's a gift. He was asking the wrong question. You and I, if we have family members that leave us something, they put it in their will and they they give us, they make us heirs to whatever, whether it's a fortune or whether it's a house, whether you're an heir to a family that has lots of debt, maybe you inherit debt more than you do actual, you know, money or something that you would want. What do you do to inherit anything? What makes you an heir? Well, many times what makes you an heir is that you are part of the family. You, you don't do anything to become an heir. Many times you get something you never could have earned. So the reality is, to inherit eternal life, you can't inherit it. Or excuse me, you can't earn it. You can't do anything to get it. It's not what you do, it's who you are. So when you inherit eternal life, the only reason you inherit it is because you're of the family of God. The family that can have everlasting life. And so what he's telling us here is that The Spirit bears witness in our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we are already heirs. There's nothing we can do to add anything to our deservance of it. The only reason that we deserve to be heirs is because that we are under Jesus Christ. We are His disciples. We are identified with Him. God looks down on us. He doesn't see our wrecked past. He doesn't see our daily failures. He looks down on us and he sees Jesus. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's what the father says. And so we are heirs because of what he's done. He's paid it all. We sing that song, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he has made me white as snow. He paid it all. So he's the reason that we inherit eternal life. He's made us sons. He's made us daughters of God. So in verse 18, he expounds on what we ended on last week in verse 17. He says, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We get the same inheritance that Jesus does. That baffles my mind. But then at the end of the verse, he says, if indeed a condition. You ever read something that says, if you do this, then you will get this. And that's what he's saying. We are... In Christ, heirs and joint heirs with Jesus. Then he puts in an if statement. So we can't earn it, but there is a clause. It says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now he's not saying if you decide to suffer. He's not saying you have to do this. He's saying if you are a joint heir with Jesus, if you are in fact identified with Christ, then you will suffer. Jesus said, you know, in this life you will have tribulation. But do not fear because I've already overcome this world. You don't have to worry about what man can do to you. Because the reality is we need to, rather than fearing what man can do to us, we need to fear the one who can punish us eternally. And so he's saying here, That if you are a joint heir with Christ, if you are a son or a child of God, you will suffer. But he's going to point out the reason for the suffering. 
God is not capricious. He's not uh, just lackadaisical when he allows suffering to come into the life of a Christian. He's got a reason for it. He says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Suffering or glory comes through suffering. And so he expounds on this idea in verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This glory, this idea is that the glory of God has been placed inside of us. It would be like taking something that's super expensive and not putting it in a big safe, but putting it in a clay pot. And that's what they would do. They would He's saying here that God's Spirit residing in us is like taking the most precious jewels you own and putting them inside of a vessel that can be easily broken into. But Paul writes here, he says, I consider, meaning him personally, that the sufferings of this present time, meaning the sufferings that you and I experience in this life, and I think that all of us could attest in here that there are sufferings, there are things that you've gone through in your life, that you wonder, why in the world would God allow this? But Paul says that he considers that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. How many of you are guilty of this? And I include myself in this. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of us keep records of all the bad things that have happened to us? Whether you plan to keep records or not. I've got a list of things that I could probably bring up things that God's allowed into my life. I don't think about them like that at the time that they happen. But I, I could think of a list of things, bad things that have happened to me within the last week. And I go, why God? Why are you allowing this? But Paul says that these things, this list, of, this record of wrongs that have happened in our lives, they're not worthy even to be breathed in the same sentence of the glory of the things that will come. Now, I don't get that. And I could easily look at this, this verse and say, well, Paul, you don't know what I've been through. You don't understand the things that I've experienced in my life. You don't know my child raising. You don't know how little we have. But what Paul's saying here is not something that he's unaware of or hasn't experienced before. What Paul's saying, he's saying it from experience. This isn't just some sort of theological platitude. The idea is, is that Paul's saying, I know what it's like to suffer, and even though I've suffered greatly, and he had, think about the things that Paul had been through. Paul had been stoned. Many believe he had been stoned to death. Paul had been beaten for the name of Christ. Paul had been shipwrecked, and later he's going to even shipwrecked for even longer. And Paul says, all of these things have happened to me for a reason. And, and I've heard people that aren't Christians, I've heard people that aren't Christians say, everything happens for a reason. But to them, I always ask the question, what's the reason? And they can't answer it, because they don't know. But we have to realize that the tension, the suffering, the pain that we go through, is not something that God's unaware of, or not in charge of. He allows things to come into our life in order to cause tension, but <clears throat> tension in our lives 
hopefully, in the Christian life will cause us to sing. I heard one guy talk about this passage, and he says that hurts and hallelujahs should go together in the Christian life. Hurts and hallelujahs. I think about my life, and I think the hurts that go on, and most of the time, you know what they cause in me? Complaint. They, they don't cause me to worship. But in the moments that I've experienced some sort of suffering or some sort of trial, and have, despite all of my feelings, decided, Lord, I know you have a reason for this. I'm going to worship you anyway. He's brought, brought blessing. So he says, verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself is subjected to, what we're going to read in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty or the freedom of the children of God. Do you know when Adam sinned, when he gave in to temptation and he sinned, he rebelled against what God had told him to do. Not only did sin affect him and the rest of the human race, but it, is, it, it was subjected also upon creation. It affected creation. Because remember the curse in Genesis? He says, from the ground you will, you will plow up the ground and you'll grow your food and you'll, you'll have to do all this by the sweat of your brow. But he also said that thorns will grow up. So when we go to grow things, we plant a garden. In there, somehow, we don't plant weeds, but weeds come up. We plant these plants, we want to grow fruit from them, and then there's weeds that just show up out of nowhere. We don't even have to plant them. They're already there. They're in the soil. Not only that, but in order for us to eat anything, we have to kill animals. Now, I'm not against that. I, I'm all for PETA, people eating tasty animals. You know, I'm all for that. They're tasty to me. I like eating fish. I like, you know, but the reality is, is that before the fall, Adam and Eve were eating fruits and vegetables. They were eating from the plants. They were eating whatever came from the plant. In order to eat a fruit or a vegetable, you don't have to kill the plant that grew it. But, so in order for us to realize that Creation itself sings from the minor key. One of the commentators I was reading this week, he said that creation desires for us to be revealed for what we are supposed to be. We're redeemed. God takes our lives and the junk that we've experienced and we've gone through and the pain and the suffering. And he creates in us song through suffering. But there's going to be a day where not only... Though we've practically and positionally been redeemed already, there's going to come a day that all that we are being created in Christ Jesus for God's good works and the, the people that we're being created, we're going to see him in his likeness and we'll be as he is. It's not going to be when we see Jesus face to face, all of a sudden in a moment we'll become like Christ. But the things that we go through in this life for the Christian will make us and forge us and transform us into the image of Christ. That includes suffering. That includes glorious things. And many times the, the things that we want to be, we want to trust God, we want to learn to follow Him. 
we don't necessarily get better at it through the times when everything's going fine. It takes hard times for us many times to learn more about following Christ. But he says not only will our lives and our bodies be redeemed, but creation itself will be redeemed. Remember there's some passages in Isaiah that say the lion and the, or excuse me, the, the, is it the, lion, the sheep and the lamb and you know, the, viper, the, the little child will be by the viper's nest and it won't be afraid. All of a sudden all the enmity, even between us and the animals, it won't be there anymore. The beast of the field, the, the king of the, the, the jungle, the lion, he will no longer be an enmity. He won't try to eat people anymore. And, and a little child shall lead them is what it says. So Lucy will be able to go out in a field of lions, put a leash around one and walk them around. I love that. Because all of a sudden the peace that comes from the creator being fully in control will be real. It won't be just a what we think as a fairy tale. And so creation itself will be relieved. It'll be redeemed. It will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 22. Paul says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Birth pangs. Not death pangs, but birth pangs the excitement about what's going to happen when everything is as it was always supposed to be. And I love this because there are people who have done studies on the sounds of nature. And they say that even the birds, and I didn't do this study, these, that's what they said, but they did studies on creation. And they said if you analyze the songs of birds, we listen to them and we hear spring and we're excited but if you listen to the songs of birds, every bird sings in the minor key. Now, if you think about minor keys, and we have people that write all kinds of depressing and melodic but depressing music, it's always in minor keys. If you've ever heard like a funeral dirge, or if you've ever heard a song of mourning, they're always in a minor key. It's kind of a, almost a note of a downer. It's not the triumphant song at the end of a movie. It's the song of... You know, the, the sigh of just despair. So if you listen to birds, though their songs are very pretty, they're actually in minor keys. And that goes to show us that the reality of what Paul wrote here is that, verse 22, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, and they currently do. Not only that, but we also, verse 23, have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, because we have the first fruits, God's given us His Holy Spirit. We ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, I think about this because I went fishing yesterday, and you guys are like, well, big deal. You know, bummer, it must have been rough on you. But I came home after cleaning all those fish, and my shoulder hurt. You know, I don't know what I did to it. I think it was when I was playing. You guys ever play that game? You go grocery shopping. You don't want to carry like a hundred loads into the house. The shipments probably do. They got lots of stairs. So you put as many of the bags on each arm as you can. And it becomes a game. Like I can carry 16 bags. You know, don't throw the milk in the 16 bag run though. I did that one time. And my shoulder to this day, it's like I, 
if I sleep with a fan on, it hurts. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say it's arthritis, but I definitely strain the joint. So our bodies even groan. You know, they groan. When am I not going to experience pain anymore? Why is my body wearing out? Well, it was never supposed to. But because of sin, because of corruption, our bodies wear out. Because of sin and corruption, our cars rust. You know, because of sin and corruption, you know, our, our, our houses wear out. We've got to replace things on it. We've got to maintain things. And so in the same way, we groan just like creation does. Lord, when are you going to make this earth what it was always supposed to be? Verse 24. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We were saved with the hope that God was going to redeem us. He was going to make us new. And the reality is, is He has made us new. He has made a new thing. We are no longer what we used to be. We are completely new creations in Christ. But the reality is, one day, not only will we know that inwardly, but God's going to reveal that outwardly. All that He's made us inwardly is going to be manifest on the outside. He says, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And I wrote a note in my Bible here. It says, if we wait for something unseen with expectancy, we are willing to endure what's going on presently. Now, I didn't come up with that. But let me say it again. If we wait for something unseen with expectancy, we are willing to endure the present situation. So we have hope in Christ. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if our hope is in, in Christ is in this life only, then we are of all people the most pitiable. It's a sad situation. But what Christ has done is he's not only procured for us salvation through this life, but he's also given us the hope of the resurrection. He's given us the hope that one day these bodies that are failing us will be made new. He's going to give us a new body. And that body will not hurt anymore. The joints won't be sore. The, the things that we've broken by doing foolish things or, or just doing life in general, it won't hurt anymore. We're going to be with Christ and we won't be limited by these bodies that get tired and worn out and broken. I love that because, and, and it used to be this verse didn't mean that much to me. But as I get older, and you guys are like, well, you got, you're young, who cares, you know? But as I get older, my body will more and more not feel great. And I'll be more and more limited by my own ability and my, my stamina. It, it gets less, it doesn't get more. It's, so, and that's what happens. But what God is saying here is that more and more, because of our bodies wearing out, if maybe you haven't experienced a whole lot of suffering in your life. But just the fact that your body wears out causes you to groan. And that groaning and that wearing out of your body, what it does is it, it allows something that you might place your hope in, it might allow that thing to fail so that you can look forward to what won't fail. And that's the love of God. That's the promise that He's going to redeem our bodies. That's the promise that He's going to, to do a greater thing. 
We can persevere through trials when we know that our hope is not in this life. Verse 26, he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You ever been in this situation and you don't know what to do, so you start praying. And when you're praying, you you start to pray and you're like, I know I need to pray in this situation and I want God's will to be done, but I don't know what God's will is. Maybe it's something frustrating with a coworker. Maybe it's a situation with your family. Maybe it's just something that you're, and a disagreement when you're having with your, your wife or your spouse, uh, I, I, whatever it might be, you've all been in a situation before where you've tried to know what the will of God was, you've tried to pray for God's will to be done, but you just don't know what God's will is. What do you do in those moments? Well, what God says here through the pen of Paul is that when we don't know what to pray and we're praying anyway, even if you don't know how to utter or what to utter, God knows. And so just to say, Lord, I trust you. It it may not be anything revolutionary, but in those moments, what God is telling us is that the Spirit is, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's praying for us. He's praying that God's will would be done. Think about the Lord's Prayer. The disciples got to a frustrating point at one time and, and they were like, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, we've seen you pray and We've gotten up early and found you before when we couldn't find you and you were off praying. You seem to know a lot about prayer. Teach us how to pray. Now you would think that the Son of God, being God himself, wouldn't need to pray, but he exemplified that you and I need to pray in all situations. We need the Lord. So what he told his disciples was, pray like this. And we've heard this prayer recited many times and that's why I know it so well. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now we've heard that prayed, right? If you have ever been in a, in a, what we would call a formal church setting, or that they do that every week, we've heard that, we've memorized it. I'm thankful to the Lord that I heard it so many times so I can memorize it. But was Jesus telling them, you have to pray this every time? No. What he was, he was giving them a form of prayer. He was giving them some basic elements. So look at it more like an outline. Our Father, you're praying as if God is all of our Father and it's not all about you recognizing that he's got other children as well. Our Father. And then you identify with all your brothers and sisters in Christ who are in heaven, realizing that the one you're praying to is on the throne. Hallowed be thy name. You are holy, God, and I am not. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when you're praying that, you're praying, Lord, your will be done in this situation on earth as it's already being done in heaven. 
Thy will be done. Your will be done, not mine, Lord. Whatever it might be. And I love that because as he's showing them this form, he's giving them what they ought to be praying. This is the Lord's will. <clears throat> For so we're praying according to the will of God. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So I love this because as he's telling us that when we don't know how to pray according to the will of God, that God's praying for us. And then he explains something that is revolutionary. He says, and this is a verse that many people have on their, on their, their walls. They have it. They'll post it on Facebook. I mean, it's, it's a popular verse and it's a wonderful verse. It's one of the most beautiful truths for the Christian if we can embrace it. He says, we know, this is something we need to know. This is a promise of God. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So no matter what God allows into your life, whether it feels good or not, it's all for God's purposes. He's trying to create in you maturity that something else probably won't create. And so when he allows trials, when he allows suffering, he says that all things... Not some things, not the good things only, but all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And he explains this. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Lord, what is your will for my life? To be conformed into the image of my son. That's always God's will. So if you are doing inventory on your lives, and you should, we should always be thinking about, Lord, is this your will for my life? One of the things you can ask is, will this conform you into the image of Jesus Christ? Can God use this to change you and make you more like his son? Now I ask that, and I point you to his life. Read about his life in the Gospels. It says there in Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience through what? Through suffering. Now wait a minute, he's God. Why would it take suffering for God to become more like God? Well, for the first time, God had put on human flesh. So he was saying, he was showing the way to everlasting life and it showed him going through trials and being proven for what he really was. And it says there that he learned obedience through suffering. Now, anybody can be obedient to God if there's never any trials, if there's never any hard times. But true obedience is always shown in how we deal with God's commands when it's not as easy, when it's hard. And so God allows those things in order to conform us into the image of Jesus that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, verse 30, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. So in verse 30, he's saying, 
whom God predestined or chose, he chose you and I, these he also called, and he called each one of you, if you know Jesus and you have a relationship with him, he called you. He called you by name. He knows you. He's spoken to you. You know you have a relationship with him. How do you know if you have a relationship with somebody? You communicate with them. That's one of the signs. But then he also says, whom he called, these he also justified. In other words, these he also made righteous. And whom he made righteous, these he also glorified. So in order for, in that day, they would have these earthen vessels, these clay pots, and these clay pots had fire in them. They were called, uh, in, in the Old Testament, they had these incense burners, and they were like what we have as lanterns. And do you guys remember the battle of Gideon? Gideon had all these thousands of men, and the Lord basically, through a long series of tests, pared them down to 300. And Gideon was called by God, Almighty Man of Valor. But when he was called that, he was called that while he was threshing wheat, I think in a wine cellar. He was somewhere where people didn't normally thresh wheat because their enemies, the enemies of Israel, were coming in and stealing all the wheat from the land and basically just robbing all their crops. So he wasn't really a mighty man of valor, but God calls the things that are not as though they are. And so he tells Gideon, I want you to gather some men and I want you to go and take, uh, who were they fighting against? The enemies of Israel. We'll leave it at that. Can't go wrong there. And when he told them to do that, he said, I want you to take these censers, these incense burners that are basically like lamps, and I want you to light them all. And then when I tell you, I want you to bust them all open and make a bunch of noise and say, for the armies of the Lord and for Gideon, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And so what they did was they took these clay pots that had this fire burning in them, and they were just over the ridge from their, the other army, and they lit them, they stood there, they waited for the call, and they busted the clay pots. And when they busted the, busted the clay pots, at that point, all of the light that was inside the clay pots got super bright all at once. Now, there was lots of noise, so that was part of the intimidation, but the light that shone forth made it look like there was a huge army on the other side of the hill. And when he did that, the, the Spirit of the Lord went on the other side and basically sent all the enemies of the Lord, he routed them. They all ran off in fear of Gideon and his army. And then they went in there and they were all confused and they took the army. God does that in each one of our lives. He's hidden his glory within this earthen vessel, this clay pot, and we are fragile and we will be fragile until the day that God completely redeems us. But in the meantime, he allows chips and holes to be knocked into our physical frame so that his glory will shine through. And many times what we do is we spend our entire lives in vo avoiding pain, avoiding suffering, avoiding trials, trying to shield ourselves from all those things. And what God's trying to tell us through this passage, don't, don't avoid those things. That's how God's glory is revealed in our lives. Let it happen. Let it happen, not just because we want to suffer. We don't want to suffer. I, I'm in complete agreement with that. But what God is showing us here is that when we hurt, 
when we have pain, when we have trials, when we have struggles, that hurt is not to be meant to be avoided by Christians. It's meant to be embraced because with the hurt comes hallelujah. With the pain comes praise. And I love that because when we experience pain, even in something that God's given us to do this morning, Lucy was pushing around this broom. And Lucy is like me. She gets frustrated very easily. And the broomstick, of course, is this tall, and she's this tall, and she's pushing it around. Now, we didn't tell her to go sweep the floor, but I was okay with it because it kept her, she was relaxed, and she was doing something constructive. But what was funny is as she was pushing that broomstick, it wouldn't do what she wanted it to do. She couldn't do what she wanted to do, which was sweep the floor like mommy, like daddy. And as she tried to do something that she knew was good, she found resistance. You know what she did when she found resistance? She cried out in frustration. And when you and I try to do something, even that God's given us to do, that we can't do, and we cry out in frustration, He's listening. And when we cry out in frustration, He's willing to give us the ability to do what we can't. And that crying out is not a bad thing. She frustrates me when she cries out to me and she wants something and I don't know what she wants. But God always knows what she wants. And he's desiring that she would cry out to him. So another opportunity for us to become more dependent upon our creator, upon our our savior, our Lord. So let me ask you this morning, what are the things, the suffering, the pain, the hurt, the, the stuff that God's given us to do that seems impossible What do you do when it frustrates you? Are you crying out to Him? Are you depending more upon Him? Or are you just quitting and going on to something else? Because I confess to you that many times I quit going on to something else because it's just too hard. And what the Lord's trying to do is produce in me a dependence that says, Lord, I can't do this thing. It's frustrating the bejeepers out of me. I need you. And then He goes, that's what I was trying to produce. You needing me. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be your son, to be an heir with Christ. I don't deserve to be. I confess, Lord, that many times instead of crying out to you, I just quit. And that's not your desire. Because when we hope in something that we can't see, it causes us to persevere because our hope goes beyond our present situation to the promise you've given us. And so, Lord, Produce in us, create in us, mature us to the point that when things are hard, when things are painful, when things hurt, when things are impossible, Lord, help us not to throw up our hands and quit, but to throw up our hands and worship you anyway. Create in us a desire to depend upon you. Create in us the ability to trust you when things seem impossible. And Lord, in the meantime, as the world looks on, as they see our lives, I pray that they would see you. So I was listening to the radio yesterday. I heard that song. Let them see you in me. In everything, Lord. Let them see you in me. Let them see you in us, Lord. Set us apart. Use us for your purposes. And help us to trust you even when you allow trials to come our way. In Jesus' name, amen.